Welcome to Redemption Community Church's Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit www.redemptiondallas.org. First Timothy 6 verse 11, he says, But as for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things and of Jesus Christ, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. What a picture of our God. To Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. O Timothy, guard and deposit, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In this he closes his first letter. Let's pray. Father, this morning, as we read the words of the great Apostle Paul, a servant, a missionary, a pastor, a martyr, who wrote these words, this letter to his son in the gospel, to Timothy in Ephesus. We know that these words were not only for Timothy 2,000 years ago, but we embrace them and believe them to be divinely inspired, God-breathed, and Holy Scripture. That they were not written to us, but they were certainly written for us for our admonition, for our edification. So I ask you in these next few moments of time that the anointing of the Holy Spirit of heaven would fill this room, would open up our understanding, would enlighten our eyes, and would let us hear what thus saith the Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Last week we looked at how Paul admonished and warned against the desires to be rich. I don't think anything is clearer in Scripture than Paul's warnings about this subject. They're not metaphors. They don't have to be interpreted. The meaning is very simple in the text. And so now he shifts gears, but as Paul often does, before he shifts gears to focus on the subject of riches in the first part of chapter 6, he's going to focus on that again in verse 17, but he shifts gears and does this whole side road that he takes to talk about some other things. 
And in verse 11, the tone of the chapter changes. He is now charging Timothy directly, and he calls Timothy the man of God. Now, Timothy, we know his mother and grandmother were people of faith, so Timothy has known the Scripture since the time he was a child. Timothy has no doubt at some point read in the Old Testament this phrase, man of God, being used. Moses, who was the one that God used to bring the law to Israel, Moses is twice referred to in Scripture as the man of God. Nehemiah refers to David as the man of God. It was said of the prophet Samuel, Behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor, and all that he says comes true. So there was precedent to use this phrase, man of God, in the Old Testament. And for Paul to use this designation to his son in the gospel was an affirmation that Timothy, while you may not be known in your world right now, like David or Moses or Samuel, you're a local pastor in Ephesus, Timothy, you too are a man of God. You joined the ranks of those great men of old. You are a man, Timothy. You are a man of God called to a particular time and a particular place with a particular calling. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost that David served the purpose of God in his own generation because that's the only generation David could serve. David was called to a particular time and a particular location with a particular calling. Timothy, David could serve the people in Israel 3,000 years ago, but David can't serve Ephesus in the year AD 65 when this was written. And I say to all of us that Timothy could serve Ephesus 2,000 years ago, but Timothy cannot serve Dallas and Wiley and Murphy and Saxe in 2023. Neither can David or Moses or Nehemiah or somebody that lived 100 years ago or somebody that lives today that has a great calling that lives a hundred miles from here or a thousand miles from here. No, it will be people like us who were called for such a time as this. It is our calling. We share in this high and holy calling to minister in a particular time and a particular place. In 1 Kings 17, it is the prophet Elijah that brings a widow's son back to life. God uses Elijah to do this. And the, the widow says to the prophet, Now I know that you are a, and here's the phrase again, you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is the truth. The cultural measurement of a man's identity. Because the, the widow had an idea. She had the right idea on the right track of this is what makes you a real man. Is that what you say is truth. That what you say are the words of God. The culture's measurement of a man's identity is far too shallow to sustain the gospel transformation that my generation so desperately needs. And I pray that God would raise up men. Real men. This was the heartbeat of George Whitfield when he prayed that God would raise up unto himself certain young men whom he may use in this glorious employ. And what manner of men will they be? Men mighty in the Scriptures, their lives dominated by a sense of the greatness, the majesty, and the holiness of God, and their minds and their hearts aglow with the great truths of the doctrines of grace. 
They will be men who have learned what it is to die to self, to human aims and personal ambitions. Men who are willing to be fools for Christ's sake, who will bear reproach and falsehood, who will labor and suffer, and whose supreme desire will be not to gain earth accolades, but to win the Master's approbation when they appear before His awesome judgment seat. They will be men who will preach with broken hearts and tear-filled eyes and upon whose ministries God will grant an extraordinary effusion of the Holy Spirit and who will witness signs and wonders following in the transformation of the multitude of human lives. That was written a couple hundred years ago and it is true still today. I have noticed, and lots of people have, there's been a lot written about this, But I've noticed a common theme among most television shows the last several years in the way that men are portrayed. And like it or not, what we consume influences how we think and does at least in part inform how we behave. Or at the very least, it makes us question what kind of person we should be. Well, that dad looks pretty good on TV. Maybe I should emulate that type of father. I think this was one of the reasons why The Cosby Show was such a a big hit in the 80s because it it kind of encapsulated a man who, while uh, the the religious spiritual element certainly was not there, but as far as a man who um, had things put together, hard worker, successful, great husband, father, um, loving, kind, um, it was a little bit of a, a swerve from what the way men had been Betrayed. And hopefully we can admit that since TV characters are fictional, they are also likely to be one-dimensional because people in real life are much more complex. Um, I, I can think of some shows that have portrayed manhood and, and a man in a good light. Um, I, I was just trying to think yesterday of, of like fathers and, and men over the years on television. I thought, you know, like Charles Ingalls in Little House on the Prairie, right? He's tough but he's gentle. He's a fighter when it's right to fight, and there is a time to fight. Uh, It's a man who went to church and prayed, took his family to church on Sundays, worked hard, loved his family. Uh, But those have been the exceptions on television. I would guess, and I don't know for sure, I would guess, I would venture a guess, but I think if I were to talk to television producers about why they create characters, like the loudmouth Archie Bunker or the man-child Homer Simpson or all the adolescent 30-year-olds that are too numerous to name on television. I think they would say it's not because we're trying to create the model person we should try to emulate. I think they would say it's rather we are creating fictional people who actually mirror the reality of the people, of what people are like in the culture right now. Because if we mirror what people are like, this is what will entice people, it will, they will be able to relate. Like, yeah, that's, that's like a lot of the people that we know in, in real life, and they would be right. That's the culture. Men of God are rare, they are precious, and they are so desperately, desperately needed. The gravity of heaven and hell surround us. Suffering abounds. And too many men, and I am speaking in particular right now about men for a reason, too many men don't want to rise above their self-indulgence of sex and sports and career. 
That's the level to which they rise. And any attempt to hold a conversation about the weightier matters of life is deemed either too academic or it's just not relevant. Nothing is more relevant than eternity. Nothing is more relevant than God's glory and the souls and the eternal destiny of men and women. I'm not, I'm not against sports. I'll watch a game, I'll go to a game and enjoy it as, as part of the time that I allow for leisure. That's fine. Like going, all for it, I'll do it. But I mourn at the number of men and women who it becomes worship in their lives. They worship, and it is, it can be an element of worship. I've seen it. They worship at the altar of the Dallas Cowboys or insert any other team or athlete. God grip us with an understanding of the weight of the reality that surrounds us. Greg Morse, who is a staff writer on the staff of Desiring God, he writes a great deal on manhood. There'll be an article that'll come out occasionally, and Greg Morse is a fairly young guy who is, writes a lot of good things. He's a, he is a wordsmith. He's one of my favorite article writers right now to read. And so he, he writes these words. Now, he says, David Mathis rightly tells us that the strongest men are gentle. So David Mathis is another staff writer, it's a peer of his, who had written an article about real men being gentle. And so he's calling out in his description of manhood, he's like, yes, David is right. And if you read the article, yeah, yeah, David is saying gentle but strong, gentle but tough. And, and so that's why he starts the article out like this. He says, David Mathis rightly tells us that the strongest men are gentle, but do not hear him saying that godly men are soft or fragile or weak or effeminate. They do not faint in the day of adversity. They dress for war every day against forces of evil. They are sacrificial initiators, not limp defers. Men who charge against enemy gates, leading from the front and refusing to take cover behind their wives and children. They lead, they protect, they initiate, they love, they sacrifice, they work, they worship. They are men. Say amen and thank you, Greg, for writing those words because our generation needs to hear them. After Paul calls Timothy a man of God, he gives them a command to flee these things. Now remember in the, the first part of the chapter, he's referring to the love of money, the, the lust for things, for the accumulation of wealth. So after the negative command in the first part of the chapter, to flee comes the positive admonition. So first he says, flee these things. Now here's the positive. He says, you need to pursue. Like, that's an action word. That's a you go do this. You go pursue. You do it with intention, with purpose, with force. You pursue righteousness. And these are Paul's words. You, this is what you're supposed to pursue as a man of God. Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Timothy, these are the characteristics of a person who is in Christ, who is honoring God with their life. In verse 12, he says, fight the good fight of faith. Every believer, especially people who are new to faith, every believer needs to understand this is a battle. We fight. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, saving faith, God justifies you, counts you righteous in Christ on the basis of your 
saving faith which was enabled by God, that you said, I am saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the word of God alone, to the glory of God alone. When that happens, you enter into a battle. You don't pray some sinner's prayer. You're not saved by praying. A person can't read a sinner's prayer and, and be saved. That's not how it works. You're saved by saving faith, allegiance, trust, loyalty, exalting Christ above all things in your life. But when you do that, you enter into a battle. Knowingly or unknowingly, like it or not, you enter into a fight. And it is a fight because there is an enemy who when you are counted righteous in Christ, you are marked by an enemy. You are now the enemy. There are powers of darkness that really do exist, according to Scripture, that war against our soul. And they hate everything about God and the gospel, everything about the kingdom. And when you align yourself with God, you gain an enemy. You will fight. You'll fight hell like you've never fought before. Ephesians 6, Paul said, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic power, powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a fight against powers of darkness in the cosmos that are in this world. He says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Now, we hear a lot of complaints in our country right now about the division that divides us. There is division among us. Now, I don't like division. I don't like disunity. But there are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things that where if everybody in the room says we're going to stand for this, this, and this, then we as the people of God cannot afford to be anything but divided. And to say we will be divided. We will not be united. As long as you take that stand, there will be no unity on these particular issues. Every generation, every decade has dealt with their own set of unique challenges Right now, the one that is front and center, center is this gender dysphoria that so many people are experiencing that is a result of an enemy that is attacking the foundational biblical reality of God's created order in the book of Genesis. Now, I don't look at people who deal with this, who suffer with this, who are confused. I don't look at them with anything but grace and mercy and love because they are suffering under the curse of something. We're not here to damn them. We're not here to condemn them. We're not here to tell them they're going to hell. We're not here to tell them they need to get right. The homosexual and the person living a good, clean, moral life that does not have Christ are facing the same eternity. Nobody goes to hell for being homosexual. Nobody. It's a really bad idea that bad people go to hell and good people go to heaven. Well, if I walked in that church, the ceiling would cave in. That's for good people. That's a moralistic understanding of the gospel. It's a bad understanding of the gospel. Nobody goes to hell for being a murderer or a thief. 
People go to hell because they are not counted righteous in Christ. Because they have not been justified by God through their faith. That's the only reason people are lost. Our default position in this world is that we're lost. So the person who lives a good, clean, moral life that everybody loves and he's the citizen of the year and he has all the respect and she has all the love and admiration of her peers without Christ, the path to eternity is exactly the same. So I'm not damning and condemning those people. I am saying that it is a result and that the fight is not against the people. The fight is against the spirit of the age. The ideas of the age, that's who the fight is against. The fight is against those who say you want to fight the individual. You fight the individual at the level of the one who is propagating this, who is, ironically enough, not usually the people who are suffering as much from it. The ideas are put out there by a certain group of people and the fallout affects the masses. Fight against the people who are propagating the idea. But I'm loving the people who are confused. They need the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because if they come to faith, true saving faith, faith always produces fruit. Always. If faith in Christ does not produce fruit, then it was not saving faith. It was words. It was lip service. True saving faith always produces fruit in a person's life. It always produces lasting transformation. If the enemy can bring chaos into the foundation and the root of God's plan, namely, what does it mean to be a man and a woman? The beginning of Scripture, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3, what does it mean to be man? What does it mean to be woman? If the enemy can attack that, everything else after that will fall in place because he's just attacked the very foundational root of Scripture. So what do we do? We do what Paul said to do. We fight the good fight of faith. And so we fight. So how do we fight? Paul said, stand therefore... So so I want you to hear these words and listen to them in light of what you may have heard about spiritual warfare in the past. And then this is how Paul says to do it. All Paul does, and he lives in prison half his life, or like after his conversion, he's in and out of, of jails. And he's witnessing and seeing Roman guards all the time. He's used to Roman military uniform. So what does he do? He starts grabbing the imagery of what he knows and what he sees. And he says, so what I want you to see is that even though the imagery is there, the, the reality of the imagery is some very ordinary things. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Paul says you fight the spiritual battle with truth, with righteousness, with the gospel, with faith, with salvation, with the Spirit, with the Word of God, with prayer. All the things that we already do, that we already know, Paul said, that's the weapons of your warfare. That's how you fight. It's nothing spooky. It's nothing ethereal. It's nothing way out there. It's just the things that we know to do. Already we do. We fight by employing the ordinary means of grace. 
That's a, a term this morning that, that I, I hope you take with you. The ordinary means of grace, because this is not my term. I did not come up with this term. The ordinary means of grace comes from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is a historic catechism. Remember, a catechism is a question and answer, call and response. The question is answer, asked in the text. The answer is given in the, given in the text. And this is often how children, when they were being raised in Christianity, it is not an exclusively Catholic thing. Catholics do this really well, but it doesn't make it inherently wrong. Now, they're going to use a Catholic catechism that we would not use, but catechisms are not exclusively Catholic. They are, and they have been used throughout Christianity as a wonderful tool to teach the faith. It's kind of a boiled down, simplified, clarified explanation to question and answer what people believe. So, the Westminster Shorter Catechism has provided believers direction for hundreds of years. And the answer in the 88th question is this, and I think this is really valuable for us to understand the ordinary means of grace. And this is what it says. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances. Now we'd say ordinances, you may say sacraments, People shy away from that word sacrament. Uh, so a lot of times in Protestant circles we'll use the word ordinances, but it's the exact same thing. Especially the word, the sacraments and prayer, and all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. Nothing out of the ordinary, nothing off the wall, nothing new or novel. Beware of the the desire for the new and the novel in Christianity. It doesn't happen. It is the ordinary means that we employ week after week, year after year. That's how God communicates the benefits of His redemption. And there is great comfort in that, and there is great solace in that. This is what the church has taught and preached throughout its history. Paul continues in verse 13, he says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and, the, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. And Paul breaks out into worship. He's like, he's writing and he just breaks out into worship and says, he who is the blessed and only Sovereign, King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in an unapproachable light, whom no man has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Paul is exalting in Christ in his description of who he is. And in his worship, Paul is declaring something about Christ that is of supreme importance. It is an attribute that I want us to see as the people of God every Sunday. I want us to see it clearly in Scripture. Jesus Christ is sovereign. He is in total charge of the universe. That is the message of Genesis 1 and 2. That is the message that the writer of Genesis 1 and 2 is, is trying to get to us. Is like, this is not, like, the natural world's not evil. 
This didn't happen by chance. God put this in place because God is in control. He is in total charge of this world and our lives. And nothing happens that is not permitted by God. God is not frustrated. If you are not totally convinced about God's sovereignty in all things, I encourage you to read Romans 8 and 9 slowly, carefully, repeatedly until it soaks your mind and heart and see the crescendo of Scripture in Romans 8. One of the most glorious chapters in the Bible. You can read it in six, seven minutes. You need to read it over and over and over again. See God's sovereignty. See the promises. And then in Romans 9, see how God is truly in control. You read too often Romans 9, which is always touted as this, the, the, one of the ultimate chapters in the Bible that tells of God's sovereignty. But it's not read in context of Romans 8 and everything that comes before it. Like we're climbing up the mountain in Romans. And, and Lord willing, someday I'll get to preach through Romans. Uh, it is, um, that is the, uh, that's kind of one of the crescendos of Scripture. Uh, just, a, just such an incredible book. Paul's most well-known book, 16 chapters in Romans. And we'll, we'll get there. Because um, I want us to see God's glory. I want us to see God for who He really is in the Scriptures. And you read Romans 9 and you just see God really is sovereign. I, I want us to see it. I mean really see God for who He is. I saw something in Scripture yesterday that I had never noticed before. And I love that. You can read the same text your whole life. And this is one of those texts that is a common text that I've heard over and over and over again. But one of the, one of the challenges you have to be careful with with the Bible being divided into chapters, yes, but I think more so verses, is that if you have verse, you have these verse designations and it tends to break up the text artificially because the writers didn't put the verse numbers there. We did that. So the scriptures could be more organized. But what happens is you'll, you'll have one verse and because of those numbers, you won't make the connection between that verse and the verse before it. When, when the writer's writing, he's not writing one sentence at a time. He's just, it's flowing. Those thoughts and ideas are flowing and they're all interconnected. So this is what I saw last night. It was the connection between verse 18 and 19. And it was very encouraging and needed. And Jesus came to said to them, this is Matthew 28, 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Past tense, it's already there. I have been given all authority. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. Done. Settled. It was secured on the cross. God's always been sovereign. But Satan lost his teeth at Calvary. And so Jesus tells his followers before his ascension, all power and authority in heaven and on earth are mine. And then there's the Great Commission, one of the most well-known verses in the Bible. I've never seen the connection between verse 19, the Great Commission, and the preceding verse. Verse 19 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded to you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I've always made a big deal about that last phrase, I am with you always to the end of the age. I've never went back, but as... It's often said, a friend of mine says it, he learned it in Bible school. When you see the word therefore in Scripture, you need to ask the question, what is it therefore? 
because the word therefore, or sometimes the word for, means it's referring to something before that. It's because of, it's causality. Because of this, this happens. What happened before? Go therefore and make disciples. Jesus commanded, He didn't ask us, He didn't suggest us, He said, your job is to go make disciples among all the nations. Therefore, what's the therefore? The therefore is verse 18. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go make disciples. The command comes with a promise. Comes with a rock solid encouragement. I control all things. I'm in charge of all things. Now you go and make disciples. That, that word therefore, that's a powerful word. He just didn't walk out one day and say, ladies, gentlemen, go make disciples of all the nations. That wasn't the conversation. The conversation was, I'm in charge of all things already. Everything's mine. Now go do what I've tasked you to do. We can go make disciples because Jesus is in control. The Great Commission by Christ is possible because He has all authority. And I close with this last section. Now Paul, he's finally getting back on track. He's taking this detour, this middle section, first part of the chapter on riches, detour. Now he comes back, verse 17. He slides right back onto the main avenue and says, As for the rich in this present age, I love how Paul writes. It's like we're going right back to where we were at. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. They are to do good with good works, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now I take this admonition from Paul to be speaking to me and to speaking to everyone who is rich, which I count as nearly everybody today. I understand there is a homeless pop population in our community. I'm not discounting that. I'm saying the vast majority of people I would count as who Paul's talking to is, is rich. Wealth can be viewed two ways. It can be viewed relative to peers, in which case I'm not wealthy at all. If it's a relative conversation, um, I don't have an incredible net worth, um, and I don't have a desire to do that. I can't, because Paul just told me last week, you don't need to have that desire. Like, you've got other things to focus on. Don't let your focus be on becoming wealthy. So, relative to my peers, people around me, no, I wouldn't be considered wealthy at all. I can't afford, I can't afford to be wealthy. Another way to look at wealth is that it is relative to people all around the world and throughout all time. And in that view, we all are filthy rich. We live better than kings and royalty and billionaires even 100 years ago. I mean, our life is much more convenient. I mean, we've, we've outsourced our work to machines, and now we've outsourced our thinking to machines. You know, artificial intelligence is the new, is the new thing. 
Uh, so we're just out. We're going to outsource all of our usefulness to something else. Why? Because we can afford to. And I, I don't know who is stopping to ask the question. Um, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Um, what are the ramifications of all that? So Paul's charge, in the view that we are all wealthy, is number one: don't be haughty. It's amazing how human nature never changes. Paul was telling people 2,000 years ago, don't let your money make you think you're better than you really are. Why is because now, remember, he's writing to a pastor, and he's writing to the, the pastor who is going to take this to the people in the church. So he's writing to believers. He's not writing to unbelievers. He's writing to people of faith saying, our wealth does not define us. Our identity is not derived from stuff. Our identity is derived from the fact that we are in Christ. The designation of being in Christ or in Him is used over 100 times in the New Testament and is the number one designation for the people of faith. It's not being Christians. It's not being believers. It's being in Christ. That's the number one way we are identified in the New Testament. That is, that is who we are, period, in Christ. He says, don't be haughty. Number two, he says, don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches. The riches are uncertain because they may someday vanish. I mean, there have been times in our history, the Great Depression, where men were wealthy one day and didn't have a dime to their name the next day. Why? It's because it's all... It's really just all a, a shell game. It's kind of all of a, of a, of a sham. You, your, your money in your wallet is worth $20 because somebody says it's worth $20. It's almost like a baseball card. Like that card doesn't have any intrinsic value. It has value because somebody says it does. And we operate now off of everything is just a number and a computer, and that's our wealth. That's uncertain. Our riches are also uncertain because they can't buy what is most important good health, peace of mind, happiness. Like we were just talking there in, in service this morning, you're talking about your friend um, and talking about, you know, that, that, that area, was it Jamaica? Yeah, Jamaica being one of the happiest places. It's like, yeah, I mean, it's not because it's not they're all running around filthy rich. It's quite the opposite. But um, so, some of the most joyful, joy-centered people I've known in my life have been people who didn't have anything but oh they were so happy they had true happiness number three we are to do good works and i take that as in relation to our wealth the believer cannot afford to be selfish we are called to be givers we are called to give we're not called to hoard we're not called to and you know it's i don't know how much you've thought of this i've always thought um you know, in my life, oh, if I, you know, if I made X amount of money, boy, would I so, I'd be such a giver. Oh, I just love to give to, uh, you know, and, and I like it. I like when there's um, a tragedy, and I, I don't like when there's a tragedy. Um, when there is a tragedy, I like when there'll be somebody that steps up. You know, some athlete or somebody that's like, we're going to pay the funeral expenses fully paid for this family. I think that's admirable. I think it's what people should do with their money. Um, I know of, of a particular athlete who did not make uh, one of the most famous ball players of the last 20 years, saying his sport, he's top three uh, professional baseball players in the last 20 years, 
often argued as across the board maybe the greatest baseball player in, in history. Um, and I know because he visited somebody in my family um, in the hospital that he would do this for children and never make a, uh, there were no cameras following me around. Nobody knows he does it. He just does it. And I only know it because he went and visited somebody uh, in the hospital. And it's like, yeah, you know, wish I, you know, if, if I was that person, I'd, I'd hope those would be the kinds of things that I would do under the radar. Um, but the reality is, if I can't give now, I probably would never give if I had a million dollars in the bank. It's like, what can we do now? That time may never come. That time probably won't ever come. But what can I give now, sacrificially? I can't answer that question for you. It's questions we have to ask ourselves. What can I do now to be a giver in the world? Paul closes with this, verse 20. When I read this, I've never read it in this light, but when I I read the words when he says, Oh, Timothy. when, When preachers prepare a sermon, we learn that what we're supposed to do is we're supposed to do exegesis, which just means we're supposed to extract what's in the text and bring it to the people. I think all preachers in their training, they're taught this is what the job is. In the pulpit, we're to exegete the text, unpack, extract the meaning of the text. The opposite of that, and the thing that we're warned about all the time, is we as preachers are told, don't do eisegesis, which is the opposite. It's to impose my meaning upon the text and to bring it to the people. I've been guilty of it. Every preacher probably has, but I really try to watch hard for that. I, I cannot afford to say, here's my idea, I'm going to impose it upon the text, and now I'm going to bring it to the people as if that's what the text means. And it's hard. It's, it's dangerous and it's hard because we're human and we don't always get that right. So to the best of my ability, I, I don't do that. So maybe this is doing that a little bit, but I'm going to put the disclaimer that maybe that's doing this. But I think what's going on here, it's the tone is, here's the thing. Paul is writing a letter to Timothy. They don't have email. They don't have the U.S. post office. Writing a letter is a big deal. You may only write somebody a letter occasionally. Paul is writing the letter first. Now, he is going to get to write Timothy another letter later, but he doesn't know that. This is the last words that Paul thinks he may ever get to speak to Timothy, period. And these people are Christians. They don't know if they're going to be alive tomorrow. So if I am writing to someone who is my protege, my son in the gospel, who I'm putting everything into, and it's the last words I may ever write, so I don't think I'm imposing the meaning on the text. Because the tone when he says, Oh, Timothy. It's the heart of a father that's crying. Oh, Timothy. It's not just Timothy, it's, oh, Timothy's crying out to him. The last words I want to say to you, Timothy, my son, like if I had to write something to either one of my sons and it was going to be the last communication I ever had with them, I'm going to make sure those words count. Those words are going to mean something. And this is what he writes, oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Guard it with everything you have. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called 
knowledge. I want you to feel the heart of Paul, the father speaking to his son. And I say to us this morning, with as much passion and desire and straightforwardness and longing that Paul said to Timothy, I say to us, guard what has been entrusted to you. Don't let one thing go that you believe. Believe the gospel with everything you have and fight. Fight the good fight. Don't give up one inch of ground in your faith or your beliefs. We all in our lives, we have things in our faith that erode. And I'm saying get that back, claw it back, fight for it back, but don't give up an inch of ground. Guard the deposit that has been entrusted to you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are, of all men and women, most blessed and highly favored. There are billions of people in this world, billions, that don't know you. There are countless people that have never heard your name. They don't know you ever existed. They've never read a line of Bible. There are people in this world today that don't even know the one true and living God. They're in idolatry. They're in darkness. We sit here this morning with an embarrassment of riches, not just materially, but an embarrassment of riches spiritually. And it's so easy because we... We are so saturated in the spiritual. It has become common. It has become known. And we sometimes even handle it carelessly without the reverence that is due. So this morning, Lord, I ask you, just as Paul cried out to Timothy to guard what had been entrusted to him, I pray this morning, Lord, that we would find and bring the same level of determination. Uh, there are things in life that we're not always dogmatic about, but there are some things that are worth fighting for. And Lord, we, we fight for the, the fidelity of the gospel message. We fight for your glory. We fight that your name may be made great. We say in all the world, but we make that even here close to home in our neighborhoods in our communities, in our circles, that your name would not be forgotten, but that your name would be great and it would be greatly to be praised. I pray this week that you would infuse us with a supernatural power and anointing of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that would be transformational in our lives and that would empower us to be witnesses throughout our community, throughout our neighborhoods, throughout our friends, family, and neighbors, co-workers, the people that we live real life with, Lord, that they would know that you are in us and that we dwell in you. Now go with us this week, Lord, as we renew our commitment to you and your kingdom. We ask this in the name above every name, the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you this morning.